Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 27th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will be presenting Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. This is part two of our presentation, and it's subtitled, Satan Revealed. We will start with... Zechariah chapter 3, which we think is an integral part of understanding what Paul is saying in this epistle, or at least it helps. The writing of the book of Zechariah the prophet can be dated rather accurately to begin about 520 BC, during the reign of the Persian king known as Darius the Great. On the surface, the subject of Zechariah's prophecy appears to be the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Judea at that time, as it is presented at the time of the building of the Second Temple, where there is also an actual high priest with the name of Joshua. His is the same name in its common medieval English form as Joshua, the son of Nun, from the time of Moses. But it is also the same name as the personal, the given name of Yahshua the Messiah, who is more commonly known as Jesus Christ. Jesus being a corruption of the Greek form of the name Joshua or Yahshua. Zerubbabel is also mentioned in Zechariah's prophecy several times in chapter 4. His name means sown in Babel, or Babylon, and he was the governor of Jerusalem at the time of the return of the remnant and the building of the second temple. While the immediate subject in Zechariah appears to be Jerusalem in Judea, that is not at all the ultimate purpose of the prophecy. Such is the nature of dual prophecies, that they are given in a manner which has both an immediate application and an ultimate meaning. The ultimate purpose of these early chapters of the prophecy of Zechariah is to describe the reconciliation of the people of Israel in their dispersions, the condition of their true high priest before their sins are removed, and the propitiation which that priest, Yahshua Christ, makes on their behalf. Joshua, the high priest of Zechariah's time, is only a type or a model for Yahshua Christ. Jerusalem, the actual city, is only a type for the true Jerusalem, the city of God come down from heaven, and the rebuilt temple is a type for the restored body of Christ found and those of his people who are willing to hearken in obedience to him. We hope to establish these things more comprehensively and with greater clarity in an upcoming exposition of the entire prophecy of Zechariah. However, with these assertions in mind, here we shall read Zechariah chapter 3. Once we do, then perhaps we may begin to see what any of this has to do with Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
The last passage of Zechariah chapter 2 reads, Be silent, O all flesh, before Yahweh, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation, which also has a meaning pertaining to Yahshua Christ. And then in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet states, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now these passages can be interpreted to represent the struggles which the Judeans of Zerubbabel's time had with the Samaritans and the Edomites in the environs of ancient Jerusalem. But they are more properly interpreted as a prophetic description of the overall history of ancient Jerusalem and a struggle which would not come to a head until the time of Jesus or Yahshua Christ. When he had persistently rebuked his enemies in the temple at Jerusalem. Zechariah continues, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. The filthy garments and the iniquity are representative of the sins of Israel, born by Yahshua Christ, as it says in the 69th Psalm, which Paul also cited in reference to Christ in Romans chapter 15. And it says there, For the zeal of thine house has eaten thee up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. Concerning iniquity, we see in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When the children of Israel were put off in sin, it was the name of Yahweh which had become polluted, as we see in Ezekiel chapter 39. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more, and the nation shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. That is one aspect of how the reproaches of Israel had fallen upon Christ. Allegorically, the change of garments is evident in the Gospel, where it says in Matthew chapter 28, speaking of the risen Christ, His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. Continuing with Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 5, And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of Yahweh stood by. 
The mitre was worn by the high priest, as it is often mentioned in Exodus and Leviticus. Speaking of when Moses had anointed Aaron as high priest, we read in Leviticus chapter 8, And he put the mitre upon his head, also the mitre, even upon his forefront. Did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as Yahweh commanded Moses? While Paul does not mention a mitre, per se, as the Levitical priesthood is dissolved, nevertheless the prophecy foretells the passing of the priesthood to Christ, meaning the prophecy in Zechariah, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 10, where Paul said that Christ was called of God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Paul is referring to messianic prophecies found in the Psalms. Because the order of Melchizedek incorporates kingship in addition to the high priesthood, we read in the Revelation that I looked and behold a white cloud in chapter 14. And upon a cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. Again, continuing with Zechariah chapter 3 verse 6, And the angel of Yahweh protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. And of course it is only Yahshua Christ who kept the commandments of God perfectly, as he attested in John chapter 15, speaking to his apostles, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Therefore Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 3, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. So Christ is also both High Priest and the God who built the house. Where we continue with Zechariah, perhaps it is better elucidated that this is indeed a dual prophecy and that Joshua, the high priest, is a type or model for Joshua Christ, the ultimate high priest. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou, and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. In Zechariah chapter 4, the seven eyes are mentioned again, where we are informed that they are the eyes of Yahweh, which run to and fro through the whole earth.
Then, in Revelation chapter 5, we see that these also referred to Christ. As John says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The stone with seven eyes laid before Joshua must therefore be the Christ himself, the same foundation stone of Psalm 118 and Isaiah chapter 28. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet is depicting Joshua the high priest as a model for the coming branch, Yahshua Christ, the future high priest who would bear the iniquities of his people. The struggle with Satan, depicted in Zechariah chapter 3, actually unfolds over the entire history of the Second Temple period, where initially the enemies of God could not stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and eventually they were able to infiltrate and subvert Jerusalem, gaining control over the nation and the temple. The struggle which Christ would suffer is therefore depicted as a struggle with Satan for control of his people, where it says, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? This rebuke of Satan happened by the mouth of Yahshua Christ during his earthly ministry. After he was glorified in his resurrection, the graving of the stone was engraved, and the iniquity of the land, as a type for the people of Yahweh, was removed. The fellows that sat before Yahshua Christ indeed became men wondered at, as they were his apostles. He told them, I am the vine, you are the branches, invoking this very language. From this point on, the gospel of peace was declared to the people of God, as Yahweh says here in Zechariah, that in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. But there is no peace to the wicked, that his enemies collectively were themselves Satan is manifest in places such as John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, Yahshua was speaking to his disciples, and he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. In John chapter 8, he was speaking to his enemies. In this exchange where he said, I know that you are Abraham's seed, probably the most misunderstood passage of scripture. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. 
I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your, with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. The enemies of Christ were Abraham's seed, but they were also of the children of Cain, as only Cain could be called a murderer from the beginning. In a different way, Christ had identified them as descendants of Cain in Luke chapter 11, where he insisted that they were responsible for the blood of Abel. The only way that both statements could be true, that they were of both Abraham and Cain, is if they were the children of Esau, rather than the children of Jacob. Esau had mingled with the Canaanites, who in turn were mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim, which is evident in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 36. The historicity of this situation is elucidated in book 13 of Josephus' of Josephus's Antiquities of the Judeans, that the Edomite population of Judea were all converted to the religion of Jerusalem, it is explained in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 35 that the Edomites would move into the lands of both Israel and Judah after the deportations of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem, and they did, after their conversions. Eventually, the Edomites took over the entire nation and put their own as its leaders and chief officers. Where these Edomites are recorded as saying here, that we be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. There is a prophecy in Malachi chapter 2, where certain priests who corrupted the covenant of Levi are portrayed as saying, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother, like Cain did, by profaning the covenant of of our fathers, and Cain attempted to profane the covenant of his father. And the answer from Yahweh God is this, Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. So these enemies of Christ are not Israelites at all, but rather 
They are Canaanite, Edomite bastards, as Cain was also a bastard. Those words in Malachi are a prophecy of those events of John chapter 8. In Romans chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus says, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And then, he explains that neither because they are the seed of Abraham, through Esau, are they all children, but in fact, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Then further on, he compares Jacob and Esau, and he says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated, quoting Malachi, and goes on to contrast vessels of wrath fitted to destruction which are ostensibly the Edomites, with vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, which are ostensibly the true Israelites. Here we will see Paul describe the Edomite rulers of Judea as the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness, which also must be a reference to the fact that they are Edomites, as he used the same term of Edomites when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, the vessels of destruction. With all of this understanding for a foundation, we can truly begin to comprehend what Paul explains here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, written only a short time before this epistle, Paul had also referred to the enemies of Christ when he wrote, For you yourselves know thoroughly that the day of the prince comes as a thief in a night. When they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction comes upon them, even as a labor pang to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. Earlier in that same epistle, Paul had referred to those who both killed Prince Yahshua and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh, and contrary to all men. The Thessalonians, reading that letter, must have wanted him to elaborate upon those lines. And in the opening chapter of this second epistle, Paul informed them that their persecution was a token of the righteous judgment of Yahweh, for which they are to be deemed worthy of the kingdom of Yahweh. Then he explained to them further, For indeed it is righteous with Yahweh to repay those afflicting you with affliction at the revealing of Yahshua the Prince from heaven with the messengers of his power in a flame of fire providing vengeance to those who do not know Yahweh and to those who do not obey the good message of our Prince Yahshua, those who shall pay a penalty, eternal destruction, from the presence of the Prince and from the effulgence of his strength. <coughs> In other words, the presence of the Prince and the effulgence of his strength are what shall execute the penalty. In this second chapter of his second epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul continues his explanation and begins by encouraging them not to be moved from their purpose, their purpose is Christian community, not to be moved from it by the enemies of Christ, referring once again to the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Now we ask you, brethren, 
concerning the presence of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, and our gathering to him. This is just a continuation of his dialogue, which was initiated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That you are not to be quickly shaken from this purpose, and you should not be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as if by us, as though the day of the prince is present. The Greek word here, nous, is literally mind, but here in this context, it is properly purpose, as Liddell and Scott explain in their definition of the word. Where Paul says, as though the day of the prince is present, he indicates that the Christian purpose should be focused upon consistently as if Yahshua Christ may return at any given time. As Christ said in the Gospel in Mark chapter 13, Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, at evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul spoke of the same day of the prince, he had explained that for reason of its coming, they should not sleep as the rest, like Christ said, watch ye therefore, and said rather we should be alert, and we should be sober, we being of day should be sober, putting on a breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, an expectation of deliverance. And he says, on which account you encourage one another, and you build one another up, even just as you do. And he advises them to admonish the undisciplined, encourage those of little spirit, put up with those who are weak, be patient towards all. Watch that one does not render evil, evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue good, both towards one another and towards all. Always rejoice, pray incessantly, in everything be thankful, for this is the will of Yahweh in Christ Yahshua for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the expounding of scripture, but scrutinize all things, hold fast that which is right, abstain from every sort of wickedness. So these instructions, among others, represent the purpose to which Paul refers here, not to be moved from it by the enemies of God. In the following passage, in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul offers an ominous warning and at least many of the denominational commentators imagine that most of this warning, if not all of it, is a reference to something which is still far off in the distant future. But what Paul speaks of here had quite clearly already been present and ongoing in his own time. The King James translators interpreted the passage as if Paul was speaking of his future, of the future from his perspective. And for that reason, they added words in italics which read, That day shall not come. And the translators of newer versions, such as the 
New American Standard Bible had done likewise, where they added the words, It will not be. These additions, which we find in italics, are among the dishonest additions of men, which pervert what Paul had actually intended to describe. In addition, in the addition of multiple words, or even entire phrases, in order to make a translation readable, should be the first sign that the translation is corrupt. As soon as you see the addition of, of multiple words and phrases in any verse, you should know there's a problem with the translation. We will discuss these verses, verses 3 and 4 here, in several parts, and then later we may repeat it, or we will repeat it, just in a different perspective. Paul begins to say in 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 2, verse 3, You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first. And these words are definitely to be interpreted in Paul's past tense, and we must explain exactly why, because these verses are so controversially interpreted to be far off in Paul's future. The first Greek verb of this verse is ex apateo, which with the negative particle is you should not be deceived. And it is a Greek verb of the aorist subjunctive, tense and mood. Most grammars say that this form of the Greek verb does not have a specific reference to time. It does not have a specific time of its own. It could describe some action that began in the past, or that is expected to begin at present, or even at some point in the future, relevant, and here's the key words, relative to the context in which it appears. And we will explain that even further. In contrast, the aorist indicative always indicates an action which began in the past. Therefore, it is frequently said that the aorist subjunctive relies on the main verb of a statement for its sense of time. And this is important to grasp translating this passage. In the Coin Greek Grammar, which is found at MotorEra.com, we read of the subjunctive mood, and I quote, that the time of the action of the subjunctive mood, referring to the aorist tense, is relative to the time of the main verb. And then, of the aorist subjunctive, it says that the subjunctive does not have its own time. It borrows from the time of the main verb. We must remember this brief explanation below when we discuss these aorist subjunctive verbs further on. The Greek clause here. First, I'm going to address these two little Greek words. The Greek clause, O-T-E-N, me elfe 
hey apostasia proton is here rendered because if apostasy had not come first. The next Greek verb in this verse is elfe, and with the accompanying negative particle it is rendered as had not come. This verse is also an aorist subjunctive, an active third-person singular form of ergomahi, which means either to come or to go, depending on the context. But its tense is aorist, and its mood is subjunctive, and that's the important thing to remember here. The first two verbs are aorist subjunctives. The particles here, hoti and ian, are rendered quite literally because if. According to the large ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon, the word hoti primarily introduces a statement in fact, and among other uses, it is a causal particle, meaning for that or because. The word ian is often the conditional if in the New Testament, but is also sometimes rendered as except, like here in the King James Version. According to Liddell and Scott, it is if happily or if when it is followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood as it is followed by a subjunctive verb here. So the phrase followed by a subjunctive verb is because if and we can understand what Paul wrote without adding words or phrases of our own to the text, which is what the other translations do. Returning to our discussion of these aorist verbs, grammarians frequently have differing viewpoints on the use of the aorist, a tense which we do not have in our English language but they nearly all agree that generally the aorist indicative always describes an action which began at some point in the past. For that reason, it is often translated as a simple past tense verb. However, in the rather incomplete explanation of the aorist verb, which is found in his Greek Enchiridion, William MacDonald only explains that the Greek aorist simply predicates action without indication of initiation or termination, completeness or incompleteness. We mentioned this because when we translated the Christogenian New Testament, MacDonald's rather concise manual was all that we had readily available. It was the only grammar we had. As a digression, the aorist may sometimes be translated as a present tense verb in English of an action which began in the past, but is still ongoing. And it is translated that way on occasion in the Christogenian New Testament. Something left unexplained by MacDonald is found in A Grammar of New Testament Greek by James Hope Moulton and Nigel Turner in Volume 3, Syntax, on page 107, where we may read the following. The use of 
present or aorist subjunctive bears little or no relation to the action sart, the time of action of the verb. In the papyri, the difference appears to be that the present subjunctive indicates that the time of the subordinate clause is coincident with that of the main, while the aorist indicates a relatively past time. In other words, with the present subjunctive verb, the action described by the verb occurs at the same time as the action described by whatever verb is found in the main clause of the sentence, whether that's a past tense, a present tense, a future tense. But with the aorist subjunctive, the action described by the verb begins before, or relatively, in the past of, the action described by whatever verb is found in the main clause. This is also important to our translation here. And what Moulton and Turner are saying is that with an aorist subjunctive verb, if the verb of the main clause is future tense, then the aorist subjunctive could also be interpreted in the future tense, but its action would be interpreted as somewhat preceding the main clause verb, which is future tense. So in that case, an aorist subjunctive, when used with a future tense verb, an aorist subjunctive verb would, would also be interpreted as being future tense. But if it's used with a present tense verb, then the aorist subjunctive must be interpreted as being past tense because the aorist indicates a relatively past time, meaning relative to the main verb. If the main verb is present tense, the aorist subjunctive must be interpreted as past tense. We have already read of the aorist tense from another source that the subjunctive does not have its own time. It borrows the time from the main verb. So the difference of opinions between our various grammars, which we cite here, is only a matter of conveying minute details. But we shall indeed see that the case here is as Moulton and Turner describe it, that the action described by these verbs in verse 3 precedes the action described in the main clause. And then we shall see why these verbs, why we translated these verbs in the past tense. But the main clause does not appear until verse 4. So Paul says in the final clause of verse 3, And the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction. The codices Alexandrinus, Alexandrinus, I'm sorry, and Claromontanus, and the majority text have man of sin rather than man of lawlessness. The text follows the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Since all men sin, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 3, we prefer the reading of the earlier codices. A sinful man may be expected to repent where there is law, 
A lawless man has no need or care for repentance. And the verb for revealed, the third Greek verb of this verse, is also an aorist subjunctive, a form of the verb apokalupto. As we have translated this passage, Paul is stating that the apostasy of which he speaks had already come, and that the man of lawlessness had already been revealed. If anyone is already deceived, or perhaps will be deceived, is immaterial. Paul is telling them that for these other reasons, they should not be deceived. Because the man of lawlessness has been revealed. All three verbs here, the verbs deceived, come, and revealed, appear in the aorist subjunctive. We interpreted them in a manner which indicates that the action had, as Paul was writing, begun in the past because the context for their time reference is set by the verb in the main clause. It is our assertion that we have not yet encountered the main clause, which we shall find in the verse which follows, where Paul describes this son of destruction as being in his own immediate present time as he writes this epistle. And he says, He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. In this clause, verse 4, there are five verbs which appear in the present tense the present active participles, which are rendered as opposing, exalting, and representing, and a present passive particle rendered as said or spoken of, and the present active indicative verb for is, in the last few words, he is a god. There is also an aorist infinitive here, a sixth verb rendered as is seated, which we may have translated as is sitting. This is the main clause of the sentence. It is from these verbs that the aorist subjunctive verbs of verse 3 must get their time reference, as we have read in the grammars which we have cited that the time of the action of the subjunctive mood is relative to the time of the main verb. And we have also read of subjunctive verbs that the present indicates that the time of the subordinate clause is coincident, meaning going on at the same time, as that of the main, while the aorist indicates a relatively past time, meaning relative to the present tense verb, it must be translated as a past tense verb. So those aorist subjunctive verbs of verse 3 are in the past tense relative to the present active and present participle verbs of verse 4. This is relatively simple Greek grammar, which cannot honestly be otherwise interpreted. Let us repeat these verses and discuss the concepts that they represent once more. You should not be deceived by anyone 
in any way, because if apostasy had not come first and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, and that's all past tense. And then we get to the present tense. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. As Paul is writing his epistle, sometime around 50 or 51 AD, the man of lawlessness is sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be a god, and opposing and exalting himself above everything, above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. This is all happening as Paul writes this, as he is writing in the present tense. This clause in verse 4 is the main clause of the passage because it explicitly defines what Paul had referred to in the preceding clauses in verse 3. If the aorist subjunctive verbs must get their time reference from a main clause, this clause in verse 4 must be that main clause because there is no other. The aorist subjunctive verbs of verse 3 get their time reference. They get their time reference from the five present tense verbs in verse 4. And therefore, according to what we have read from several Greek grammars, they describe actions which began to happen before the actions which are described by those present tense verbs. The aorist subjunctive The aorist subjunctive verbs are dependent on the present tense verbs for their time. Yet most Bible translators defy the grammar and make the present tense verbs dependent upon the aorist subjunctive verbs, imagining that the aorist subjunctive is a mere replacement for the future tense in an attempt to turn the whole statement on its head and push its context far off into the future. But Greek, the Greek language, has a future tense, and Paul could easily have used it if that were what he had meant. If Paul understands that the son of destruction is sitting in the temple as he writes, then the revelation of the son of destruction must have already occurred. If Paul understands that the man of lawlessness is exalting himself above God as he writes, then the man of lawlessness must have already been revealed. This was indeed one purpose of the ministry of Christ, and Yahshua Christ himself had done these very things. As we had observed in Zechariah chapter 3 earlier, Zechariah was not prophesying of some Jesus in heaven standing alongside Satan before God in heaven. Rather, Zechariah was describing the struggle which Christ would have against Satan here in this world during his earthly ministry. And that Satan was the Edomite Jew sitting in the temple of God and pretending to be his God, exalting himself above everything which had anything to do with God. Zechariah described 
the enemies of Christ before the fact. And Paul here is describing them after the fact. While in John chapter 8 and elsewhere, Christ had told us precisely who his enemies were. As Christ told his enemies in John chapter 10, But you believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Those who deny Christ were not his sheep, and Judaized Christians who reject these words, imagining the Jews to be the people of God, they also reject Christ. As Christ told his, his enemies in John chapter 8, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. If God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Judaized denominational Christians reject the notion that those who reject Christ are devils, and therefore they also reject Christ. Paul is telling us here that those Judeans who rejected Christ and who therefore exalted themselves above God are the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. As we have seen, Paul said in Romans chapter 9 that not everyone in Israel, as he was also writing in the present tense, was of Israel. He went on to compare Jacob and Esau, quoting Malachi, and describing the one as vessels of mercy, in the plural referring to Jacob's descendants, and the other as vessels of destruction, in the plural referring to Esau's descendants, because Yahweh loved Jacob and hated Esau. Malachi was prophesying the future of the priesthood from his own time, which was also at the beginning of the second temple period. So he describes the corruption of the priesthood and compares the people of Judah to their ancient patriarch, who also had one Canaanite wife. And he says that Judah had married the daughter of a strange god. This is how the people of Judah married the daughter of a strange god. Esau had intermarried with Canaanites, who had mingled with Kenites and Rephaim. And during the second temple period, the remnant of Judah had grown to be quite powerful, and had eventually gone out and conquered all of the Edomites and other Canaanites who were dwelling in the lands of ancient Israel, forcibly converting them to Judaism. Malachi prophecies the exchange which Christ had with his enemies, who insisted that they were not children of fornication, that they all had God as their father, and Christ rebuked them, telling them that their father was Cain, who was a devil. Zechariah describes the adversary of Joshua as Satan, and he too is referring to Christ. So the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction is Satan and the devil.
But Paul is using those terms to describe the Edomite Jews of Judea in his own time. Thus Christ says in a revelation, And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In the first epistle of John, the apostle describes much the same thing which Paul had described in Romans chapter 9 where he writes in 1 John chapter 2, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. As Paul describes, and as the histories of Josephus prove, they were Edomites and not Israelites. So John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Then John concludes and says, who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. The Jews are Satan, the Jews are the devil, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and the Antichrist. All of these labels, all of these may be labels describing those who oppose Christ at any given time. However, they are all also collective terms for the Jew. The Apostle Jude also described these enemies of Christ in a much more poetic manner, where he wrote, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter describes them similarly in his second epistle. They are both describing the Jews, those enemies of God, of Christ, and of man, who had actually descended from the Kenites, the Rephaim, and all the other bastards of antiquity. This is the Satan of the apostles and the prophets, connected to that old serpent of Genesis chapter 3, which can be traced through the Bible and ancient history. Today, they are known principally as Jews, but also go under many other names. At some point in the early development of the Roman Catholic Church, somehow, men exchanged this real Satan for a perceived Satan in heaven a spirit Satan, in spite of what Jesus himself had told us in the Revelation, that Satan had already been cast out of heaven, and that neither was their place found any more in heaven. We are then informed that when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, a reference to Yahshua Christ. The Jews have persecuted that woman, who represents the white nations of Christendom ever since. But the Judaized churches, the denominational 
churches refuse to acknowledge the identity of Satan as the Jews, something which was clearly taught by the apostles of Christ. They would rather remain comfortable with their invisible bogeyman Satan, while, as the apostle Peter warns us, your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul told his readers, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Discussing that passage, we noted that their own countrymen, the Thessalonians' own countrymen, afflicted them only at the instigation of the Jews, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 17. Reading Peter again, and comparing Peter, Peter's statement to that statement of Paul's, we see that the Jews afflicting Christians are Peter's devil, as he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Comparing these statements by Paul and Peter, Paul's Jews, contrary to all men, are Peter's devil. To Christians everywhere, there should be no question. Here we shall continue with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is reminding his readers that he taught them these things which he had repeated here when he was with them. Do you not remember that, yet being with you, I had told you, I had told these things to you. And you know that which now prevails, for him to be revealed in his own time. And the pronouns here in verse 6 follow the gender of the corresponding Greek words precisely, where Paul uses both the neuter and the masculine. We will discuss our translation after presenting verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way. The Greek word katecho, Strong's number 2722 is to prevail here in verses 6 and 7. But it is translated in the King James Version as to withhold in verse 6 and to let in verse 7. According to Liddell and Scott, the verb katecho means to hold fast, to hold back, to withhold, to detain, to have in possession, possess, occupy, or to hold down, overpower, 
oppress or afflict. And they are definitions of the word where the verb is used transitively, where it has a direct object. And in the intransitive, which is how it is here, it is to hold, to stop, to cease, to prevail, or to have the upper hand. The verb is intransitive here in both these verses, and therefore it is to prevail, as Liddell and Scott offer it in their definition. It could have been translated, he who has the upper hand, only presently. Although it is quite a versatile word, I cannot account for the King James rendering of the word as let, to let, in verse 7, except to say that the translators must have been confused. It seems that the King James Version translators took the subject of Paul's statements here to be God himself. And the result is a confused translation where they distorted the meaning of the verb echo in both places where it appears and also inserted words which are not found in the text in order to try to make sense of the statements. The form of echo in verse 6 is a present tense particle. I'm sorry, a present tense participle accompanied by an adverb which means now, prevail, now. In verse 7, the verb for operating, an ergeo, is also in the present tense, accompanied by another adverb which means either now or already. Where echo appears again, it is also in the present tense, and the aorist subjunctive verb which follows, a form of the, ver the Greek verb ginomahi, which is to be or to become, relies on the present tense verbs for its time reference. So it also describes an action which actually began in Paul's past, but here it is rendered as he should be. As we have seen in the definitions which we have provided for the Greek grammars, from the Greek grammars, the aorist tense can describe an action which has begun, but which is not necessarily completed. Here it is evident from verse 3 that the man of lawlessness had been revealed, but that revelation is an ongoing process. So while Christ in the Gospel had already made the revelation, most Christians still do not understand it in spite of Paul's explanations. The King James translators seem to imagine that God is the subject of verses 6 and 7. So they translated a verb as let, which does not mean let, and they translated echo as a transitive verb when, in the form it, is used, in the form it appears in here, it is intransitive. To the contrary, the subject of Paul's statements here is not God. The subject has not changed since verses 3 and 4. It is that same man of lawlessness and son of destruction sitting in the temple in Jerusalem as Paul wrote. The terms here are used collectively. Paul's intent is clear 
and there should be no confusion, keeping Paul's statements in the context in which they were written. Paul is describing the man of lawlessness who was still sitting in the temple of God and exalting himself above God. That man of lawlessness was therefore prevailing at Paul's present time and would prevail until he is finally taken out of the way. So that man of lawlessness was described earlier by Paul as the reason why the Christians of Thessalonica, as well as those of Judea, were being afflicted in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The explanation of that affliction, which began in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, is the very reason why Paul is describing the man of lawlessness here. As the Apostle Peter said, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. On this behalf. Why would Christians be persecuted and suffer at the hands of those who deny Christ if God prevails on earth? Agreeing with Paul's statements here, the Apostle John had said in the final verses of his first epistle, We know that we are from of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As Paul describes here, it is the evil one which prevails. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul mentioned the spirit that is now operating within the sons of disobedience and described them as children of wrath. In John 14.30, Christ spoke of his enemies and said, The ruler of this society comes, and he has, does not have anything in me, which means that he has nothing to do with Christ. Then later in John 16.11, Christ said that the ruler of this society has been judged. But even though Christ said that they were judged, as Paul writes, perhaps as many as 18 years later, they are still sitting in the temple of God and pretending to be above God. So that demonstrates our assertion that Paul is describing their being taken out of the way as an ongoing process. Therefore, we read in verse 3 here that the man of lawlessness had already been revealed relative to Paul's own time. And here in verse 6, Paul says that he would be revealed in his own time because the revelation was still ongoing through the spread of the gospel. However, even there, the word for revealed is an aorist subjunctive in verse 6, reliant on the main verb for its time reference. The main verb is you know, oidate, you know, and that is a perfect tense indicative. Therefore, the revelation of that which now prevails is complete for those who know the gospel. But it seems that both situations are true. Yahshua Christ and his apostles have explained the identity of the man of lawlessness, the devil, Satan, the son of destruction, the antichrists, and whatever other terms they use to describe the Jews or the enemies of God. 
But the people of God are still to this day, for the most part, blind to the meanings of the plain words of Scripture in relation to these things. There are other prophecies which explain this dilemma. One of them is found in the opening verses of Malachi. Jerusalem and the second temple were already built when the prophet Malachi had written. And since it was thrown down and made desolate by the Romans in 70 AD, only one people have returned to rebuild it. So we read in Malachi chapter 1, The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? This is a dialogue. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh. Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. How typical is that of the Jews? We are impoverished. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. The Jews who cry poverty, and who have returned to rebuild the desolate places, as Christ had told his enemies, your house is left to you desolate, are these same Edomites, and the white Christians who truly descended from Jacob, have more care for the Edomites than they do for themselves, as the prophet depicts them to say, was not Esau Jacob's brother? This is Christian Zionism in prophecy, and Judaized Christians are worshipping the eternal enemies of God. This is Satan revealed. And this is the devil of the scriptures, as Paul here continues to discuss in verse 8, in reference to the mystery of lawlessness already operating and prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way. And then will the lawless be revealed, whom Prince Yahshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence, as he also indicated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the verb for revealed here is a future tense verb, which along with the verb for destroy, are the only future tense verbs in the first ten verses of this chapter. So, the man of lawlessness, Satan, the devil, has been revealed in the gospel and the writings of the apostles, but will also be revealed at the second advent of the Christ. Ostensibly, Christians remain blind. Ostensibly, that is because vengeance belongs to Yahweh, and he has waited a long time. Here, 
Paul's words invoked the word of Yahweh at Deuteronomy chapter 32, which he had also cited in Romans chapter 12, and we will read from verse 35. To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, when they say peace and security, suddenly destruction comes upon them. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. For Yahweh shall judge his people, and repent himself for his servants, when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. Compare Isaiah chapter 26, verses 11 through 18. And he shall say, Where are their gods, the idols that the children of Israel had worshipped? their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drink the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies, and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, the twelve tribes of Israel. For he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So when the people of God follow the enemies of God, he allows the natural punishment which results. Where are their gods which they worshipped? But eventually he shall deliver his people and destroy his enemies, who are that same man of lawlessness, which Paul describes here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the Satan and the children of the devil, which Yahshua Christ had confronted during his earthly ministry. This event of which Paul speaks is described in Revelation chapter 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And skipping to verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, all of the heathen nations which the satanic Jew 
rallies and organizes against the children of Israel, as it is described in Revelation chapter 20, to make war against him that sat on a horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. In Revelation chapter 13 we see one characterization of the devil, where it is also describing the enemies of God who would come to rule over the people of the earth. As Paul describes, he who now prevails, earlier in this chapter, and it says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. In that manner, Paul continues here, where he is still speaking of the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. And he says in verse 9, whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, or Satan, in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood, and in every trick of unrighteousness, in those who are perishing, because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. Compare that language to some of what we had just read in Revelation chapter 19. Here the King James translators took a noun, parousia, which means presence, and translated it as a verb, coming, evidently in support of their poor interpretations earlier in this chapter. Here Paul himself has connected the concept of Satan to the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, those who, in his own time, were sitting in the temple of God and exalting themselves above God. The Jews who oppose Christ are therefore in accordance with the operation of Satan. And all Jews throughout modern history had descended from these same Jews who had opposed Christ. It is said of them that his blood be on us and our children. All Jews are the children of those Jews. They all continue to operate in accordance with Satan to this very day. But while devils have no chance of salvation, here Paul is also speaking of those who are deceived because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved, making it evident that he is also speaking of people who had a chance of being preserved people under the covenant. However, these words must also be understood in Paul's own historical context.
in Romans chapter 9, written perhaps seven or eight years after this epistle, Paul had expressed concern for the Israelites in Judea, those who had not yet accepted Christ, where he said, I speak the truth among the anointed, I lie not, my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great, and distress incessant in my heart. For I prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for my brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons, and the honor, and the covenants, and the legislation, and the service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being over all blessed of Yahweh for the ages." While Paul in that chapter went on to explain that not everyone in Israel was an Israelite because many of them were of the accursed Edomites, he nevertheless shows a great concern for the remaining true Israelites who were deceived not having accepted Christ. In Romans chapter 16, Paul informed the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So he evidently understood that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by the Romans, as it is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. So he was concerned that some of his own kinsmen would continue to be deceived by the operation of Satan, and as a result, they would perish in the judgment coming against Jerusalem. And he says in verse 11, And because of this, Yahweh sends to them an operation of error for them to believe in that which is false, that all those should be judged who, believing not in the truth, rather have satisfaction in unrighteousness. When men have no love for the truth, for their punishment, Yahweh God makes certain that they hear and believe even greater lies. There is an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 22, where, because Ahab would not believe the words of Micaiah the prophet, who told him the truth, Yahweh purposely put a lying spirit into the mouths of the prophets with whom Ahab had consulted, which led to his own destruction. Likewise, we have this as a model or a type where mystery Babylon falls, and it is said in Revelation chapter 18, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Ostensibly, there will be people punished at that time as well, because they have no love for the truth, and instead have satisfaction in unrighteousness. Those Edomite Jews who were deceiving the true Israelites in Judea, of whom Paul was concerned, were also the merchant dragons who gave their power to the ancient empires, and then to the papacy, which were the beasts of the Revelation, of Revelation chapter 13. And they are also those international mercantile Jews 
of Mystery Babylon today. Like the devil in Luke 4, who boasted of having control of all the world, these devils have always sought to control all the world. Christ is the only solution, and for that reason they have sought to destroy true Christianity these 2,000 years. They deceive Christians, and Christians who have no love for the truth, and listen to the devils instead, are bound to be punished with them. All men, Christian or otherwise, who love not the truth, and who for that reason are deceived by them, shall ultimately suffer the punishment coming upon them. The next segment of our presentation of this second epistle to the Thessalonians will be titled, The Faith is Not for All. The Jew is Satan. There is no doubt when you actually examine the scriptures. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.